0: When the box starts to break and all the boogeymen come out and all the stuff you don't like and all the bad things people said to you and all the things you did to hurt yourself, then you have an opportunity to wrestle with those and to make amends and to take accountability and to practice forgiveness and self-compassion and put it to rest.
1: Welcome back to an all-new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the
2: ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, Heidi. Hey, Jamie. Let me ask you a question, Jane. Do you ever feel like any of the social and mainstream media prescribed self-help, self-love, and all the many, many, many suggestions for healings are kind of creating more harm than help? Could be. Do you feel that way? From time to time. I mean, like I personally have fallen prey to spending way more hours than I have on like quote unquote healing remedies that have led me to sleep deprivation, which then increases stress and so many worse things because I'm trying to fit all the healing in, right? When I heard that there was a new book out by Gabrielle Polici, PhD, aka Dr. Gabby called quote, all this healing is killing me, end quote, I knew that we needed to interview her for the show. But the only thing is the title did not mean what I thought which was exactly what I was just talking about. It wasn't all the various remedies draining a person. It was actually about the intense, grueling work that it takes to actually heal that the title is referring to. We will be speaking with Dr. Gabby, the author of All This Healing Is Killing Me, a professor and coach who guides individuals and groups towards wholeness using writing as medicine. She completed her doctoral work in transformative studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies with a dissertation on women healers and studied plant medicine with indigenous healers in new mexico and guatemala she has been a university professor of integrative and holistic medicine since 2007 and a regular presenter at global conferences she was named one of the top 100 women of the future in 2022 for her work in emerging technologies during her 20 plus year career dr gabby has taught hundreds of students and clients Proven Strategies for Positive Change in Life and Work. She specializes in creating well-being at the intersection of integrative health, spirituality, and storytelling. Her first book, All is Healing is Killing Me, a memoir, speaks to mental illness, loss, and grief, complex PTSD, and the long journey to healing and trauma recovery. So listen to today's
1: show if... You want to learn why we are only as sick as our secrets. You'd like to hear about how childhood trauma impacts our physical and mental health, as well as our adult relationships. You want to learn how to take control of your own narrative and write yourself a happy ending.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gabby. We are so excited to have you with us today. This is so fun. Thanks for inviting me. I am so excited to have you here. I touched on this, but didn't want to ruin, you know, the moment. I usually kind of pick up a book that if we're interviewing an author before the show to sort of finger through it, pick up a few highlights, have some knowledge, you know, so I'm not flying blind. I feel like that's rude. And I just want to share with you and all of our listeners that once I started reading your amazing book, which is called All This Healing Is Killing Me. I actually couldn't put it down until I was done with the last word. And I have to say that that has never in the history of my life happened to me with a book before that had anything to do with healing, like ever. And I've read a ton. So thank you for that, Dr. Oh,
0: (laughs) That is the sweetest compliment. I appreciate that so much. Well, I
2: really appreciate your book. I just, this is Heidi speaking for any listeners who can't see us. And i related so much To what you wrote on so many levels, like just all of it, and you know, we're very definitely going to get into this amazing book very shortly. But first, I want to sort of crawl back a little, and I wanted to let you know, just for your information, our listeners all know, just in full disclosure, that about a little over a year ago, I was attacked in broad daylight by five males on the street in New York City. So when your PR rep reached out and listed complex PTSD as an area where you have expertise, I was like, yes, yes. Her! I want to interview her! This doctor! And, oh god! And because you know, it's obviously something I'm still struggling with, I'm doing all the work, blah, blah, blah. But then after reading your book, I think perhaps she was referring to a different kind of PTSD than I was thinking of, right? So can you please uh, just start by like painting yeah. a picture for our listeners about what PTSD is exactly? Because I think often we associate it only with war veterans. And perhaps a better explanation than I could ever give of what complex PTSD is.
0: Well, I mean, first I want to acknowledge your experience and say, like, it's very brave of you to share that. I found my own challenges in sharing my story when I was writing. It's hard to talk about these things as much as we want to live in a world where it's okay to show up 100% fully as yourself. That's not really the reality most of the time. and so. I think this conversation is important and you you sharing your experience is important as well as me sharing mine. So yeah, I just want to say there's a lot of bravery in that. And I think it's important that we keep doing that. And hopefully this conversation will encourage other people to do that as well. With regards to trauma, trauma is a funny thing because my relationship to the concept of trauma, as well as the word has shifted so much over the last 20 years of working with trauma. The best, simplest explanation, I would say, is it's an injury. That That would be the simplest thing. It's an injury. And there's small ones and there's big ones. And there's ones that happen repeatedly. You know, a small one might be when you're shamed about something, like you didn't get good grades and your mom called you stupid or something. And all the way up to really big ones, like you mentioned war veterans or a sexual abuse or being attacked on the street, right? Those are really, really big ones. And just like with a physical injury, when we think of Getting a paper cut versus breaking our spine, the recovery is very, very different. The amount of support, the amount of medicine, the amount of rehab—all the things are very different depending on the injury. The way I think of complex trauma is if you kept injuring the same thing repeatedly. So, like you sprain your ankle and then you sprain it again and then you sprain it again and then you sprain it again and then you you like—it's this repetition. I think that makes complex trauma what it is. Uh, and the repetition, it rewires you, it rewires your nervous system, it rewires your emotions, like it's just the unraveling of that, I think, is a journey. And I, I don't think there's any quick fixes or simplicity in it. And I think that a regular trauma can become a complex trauma if you feel the repetition of it. So you had the attack and then you keep remembering it, or maybe you keep seeing the attack or attackers or abusers or, Maybe someone finds out about it and posts on social media, and then maybe, you know, everybody starts talking about you. I think there's ways that one trauma can become complex, but I think it's, if you think about it in terms of physicality, it makes it a little bit easier to grasp because these things are very, very hard to hold, right? They're all so intangible, but hopefully that might help a little bit in terms of how I think about it. No,
2: it, it helps a lot. Thank you. And I think that, you know, in the book, you we're talking a lot about, you know, childhood patterns that evolved and we'll talk about that later, but that's sort of where I was like, okay, so this is a complex trauma versus a trauma, trauma, because I guess, like you said, if if it was your ankle and you kept spraining it as a child, that pattern just gets repeated and repeated and repeated, correct?
0: Yeah. The complex part is that it's really hard to figure out what the hell is going on all the time. (laughs) Like I, I remember being at like this really beautiful, like outdoor, cafe in Barcelona with a boyfriend and people behind me, not even close to me getting into some kind of fight and going into like a full panic attack in like the most beautiful place you could possibly be. So the complexity is like a lot of times you just don't know what's happening or you get like physical manifestations, physical symptoms of the trauma. You'll find that you're repeatedly getting a urinary tract infection or you're repeatedly getting a migraine or something. And you, you're going and you're trying to deal with the physical problem. And it's not actually a physical problem, right? It's a symptom of this trauma that keeps coming up. And you're like, what's going on? So the co- complexity for me is really the mystery. It's a lot of work to solve the mystery of complex trauma, in my, in my
1: opinion. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I'm so glad that you also explained a little bit about that there's different degrees of trauma because one of the things I recently learned, Heidi knows I'm doing um, a retreat at the end of April with a, a doctor also who who works on trauma and we can approach trauma so many different ways. When I first spoke to him, I was like, so I think what you do is so amazing. I haven't experienced trauma. And he was like, okay, all right, well, we'll get into it. And so when I did my session with them, he was, first of all, I'm a drug addict in, in almost 20 years of recovery, but I've been to some dark places. The fact that I didn't even make a connection that i've created so much of my own personal trauma by what i've been through is wild but he was even explaining like what you just explained the little t traumas the emotional concussions he calls them when like you know you heard something through the lens of you know my mom said something to me and i heard it a certain way and it it stuck with me and i've carried it with me for 30 years i thought i was stupid because she said something to me when i was 12. it's like that's real, right? That's real. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff that we have the ability to unravel as adults if, if our eyes are open. Does that sound, is that right?
0: 100%. I love the concussions word, that's such a, that's such a powerful word because we know that there's long-term effects for that. And our society is not well, <laughs> our society is not well. And that means that if you grew up in society, you were exposed to any number of things like gender discrimination or racism, or you were exposed to any number of things, just being in school, maybe you were bullied, like all the things, but we're not living in this kind of rainbows and unicorns. So it's going to be hidden in a lot of ways. And like you said, once you start doing the work, you start to make those connections to things that were said or things that happened. And then also just getting that bird's eye view of like life in general and being like whoa a lot of people are like drinking every night and like that's like a collective soothing self-medicating mechanism that's operating like for everybody or you know overeating or being on social media scrolling 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 these are all symptoms society as a whole has a lot of healing work that they need to do. So yeah, it can be hidden. And part of the journey is making those connections and developing that awareness. So
1: you're mentioning the collective healing that we have to do. And I want to talk about the title of your book for a minute. I think Heidi and I both thought upon reading All This Healing Is Killing Me that, you know, maybe it was commentary over like the overprescribed self-healing antidotes on social and mainstream media. But after taking a look, we both got your book. Thank you for sending. And I also loved it. Now I understand. I don't really believe that's what you're talking about. So can you explain why was all the healing killing you?
0: Well, it's like those memes on Instagram where you see some little kid like on a roller coaster like, ah, like the universe is making me do spiritual work, you know, and there's this misconception that like spiritual work is the girls in flowy outfits and like rose mandalas on the beach and sound bowls and whatever, which is like some of it, but some of it like you just described, like the shadow work or the hitting rock bottom Some of it is brutal, man. I call it warrior work. Some of it is brutal. Like if you're really going in there, you got to be brave. You got to be strong. You got to be resilient. And you need some warriors by your side to go in there with you who have gone there before because you can get halfway in and you're not with good guides or good support And they could shut down and you could end up worse off than you were before you started. And my blessing and grace, as you read in the book, is like finding good people when I needed them and getting support that was, you know, a lifeline to get through some of this stuff. And I don't know, is this a journey that everybody's on? I don't know. The amount of people that have come up to me just from reading the title and not reading the book and going, oh my God. (laughs) Like, I don't even know what your book is about, but I know that it's about me. I mean, that kind of commentary that I get everywhere I go, I was shocked. I like, I didn't think it was going to resonate and people that I didn't even expect, like, like a guy I went to elementary school with that saw it on Facebook or like some guy that works in tech that I met at a conference that saw it on LinkedIn. The kinds of people that are reaching out, I think that we're sharing a similar kind of purging. (laughs) And confrontation of things. And and also, it's kind of tongue in cheek, like all this healing is killing me, right? It's also kind of tongue in cheek because I'm also someone um, who's kind of funny in real life.
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it's so, I think our listeners should know you were like, how much fun can we have over the next hour? And I was like, wow, this is a really heavy topic to enter like that. But yay! <laughs> I thought that was amazing. So, yes, the tongue in cheek makes all the sense. When you were just answering Jamie's question, you touched on sh- like shadow work and shadow self, and I was fascinated by the part of the book where you talked about trauma bonds and finding partners who replicate the relationships we had with our parents. And I, I actually like stopped reading, got up, got a highlighter, started Thank highlighting, the book, which I don't think I've done since undergrad. Like I just don't think I've done that. Um, so thanks. And wow. I started highlighting when you wrote about storing low self esteem in our shadow, and I'm using air quotes over the word shadow because that's what you called it, and how that unconsciously attracts partners who treat us poorly. You know, I think that most people roll their eyes at the expression "We can't love ourselves until we truly, or we can't love another until we truly love ourselves." And reading this book, act, I also sometimes roll my eyes. I'm like. Puh. Like, I don't need to love myself to love my children. Like, I love them with every fiber of my being, blah, 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 you know, yada, yada. But this book actually made me feel like that might actually be true. So can you talk a little bit about what our shadow is and how we could potentially break the cycle of living in that repeated shadow?
0: Wow. Yeah, that's a powerful question. And also, I think some of this is a both and. You can love and still have a long ways to go in loving yourself. I mean, people who've met me over my lifetime would say that I was an incredibly loving person. People love me. I'm surrounded by people that love me and I love them back, but there's always a deepening, I think, in intimacy and authenticity and quality as you continue along the path. The way I would describe the shadow to go back to the trauma part of the conversation would be all the shit that you're not dealing with. It's like, if you had had that attack and that had tack had made you feel victimized and helpless and horrible in all these ways. And you were like, I don't have time to deal with this. I have to make a podcast. I have to take care of the kids. Like I need to make lunches. I don't have time to deal with this. And you put it in a box and you compartmentalize. We start out with a small box where, you know, it's like the teacher said something to you at school, right? We start out with a small box and the box gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we just keep putting stuff in it and saying like, I don't have time for this or this doesn't feel good. I prefer to do something fun. I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. And my experience of it is that that box can be pretty sturdy for a pretty long time. I think we can get pretty comfortably, unless your box is terrible, we can get pretty comfortably through our 20s and 30s with that box intact. And I think one of the kind of midlife crisis interpretations is like your box blows up. Like it just, your box, it, it, it can't hold anymore. It's rotten. It's like the hinges are coming off, like the box just doesn't hold anymore. And it starts spurting out, and maybe starts spurting out in these weird behaviors that everybody's looking at you like, why is she acting like that? Or maybe it starts coming out in like physical pain, physical manifestation, physical illness, you know? That's my version of what the shadow is. And then when the box starts to break and all the boogeymen come out and all the stuff you don't like and all the bad things people said to you and all the things you did to hurt yourself, then you have an opportunity to wrestle with those and to make amends and to take accountability and to practice forgiveness and self-compassion and put it to rest and move forward in a way that's much more peaceful, which is where I am now, because I did that. I had the battle, you know, and the battle lasted a long time and I did it. And mine looked like a lot of different kinds of therapeutic work, like psychological therapeutic work, physical somatic work yoga trainings, meditation trainings. I've done a lot of plant medicine. I've worked with all kinds of psychedelic medicines from peyote to psilocybin to ayahuasca. So I've gone through the whole thing and I've confronted and made peace with all of the things that are in that box. And I feel fucking fantastic. I feel fantastic, honestly. Just easy, easy in my skin, confident about who I am. I said on one interview, I put everything in the book that I didn't want you to know about me. And the nice thing about putting everything in a book that you don't want anybody to know about you is like you don't have to pretend anymore. Like you already told everybody all the stuff that you don't want them to know. So now you can just relax a little bit and just be like the people that love me, love me. And the people that don't love me, they don't love me. And there's nothing I can really do about it. So to me, shadow work is like really life-changing and really worthwhile, which is why I write about it, which is why I think it's a great, Practice if you want to clean up your house. It's a condo. What's that lady Marie Condo? Yes, <laughs> it's, yes. Like, it's
1: like a con-
0: it's like condo for your soul. Like it's like oh. cleaning up your house. You know, clean up your house, and it's gonna take some time. And you're gonna have to step away from the things that normally distract you. You're gonna have to disconnect from the social media and the alcohol and the food and the sex. You're gonna have to disconnect, and you're gonna have to clean up your house if you want to feel better. And I think it's worth it. Well, let's talk about that
1: because so Heidi and I are both students of healing. We both love learning more about living better. And, you know, I've done trainings in, every you know i'm certified in nutrition and and nlp and matrix therapies and heidi's done multiple yoga teacher trainings and nutritional trainings and healing therapies and all these different things but i don't think either of us have really ever gotten to experience those immersive intensive guided healing trainings like the ones that you write about and you're kind of talking about this right now right like it almost sounds like inpatient rehab like complete with a detox right yeah so do you think those are keys to healing is it something that people need to do if they really want to commit to the deep work Or do you think people are capable of kind of doing it on their own or with online courses? Like, do you suggest people really go all in and and take on like an immersive experience like that? Or is it something that they can kind of wade through by say maybe reading your book and then taking some steps?
0: I love how you frame it in that way of inpatient, outpatient, that really resonates. I went inpatient because I had to. I just didn't have any other choices. I had gotten to the place where my box opened up and <laughs> I just had no idea what to do with it. I think I talk about it in the analogy of like dirty laundry or something. I just didn't know where to start. I couldn't pick it up. I needed inpatient support. I was only there for a week, but I'm someone who's gone on retreat repeatedly. Like I've done Vipassana retreats and I've done you know, every year would do the Kundalini summer solstice and winter solstice. I'm someone who believes in retreats because I think it's such a great reset. And I think it's just such a great purge to kind of start fresh. It's like fasting or, you know, people intermittent fasting is really popular right now. Cleanses, right? When you do a three day liver cleanse, like all these things, we kind of intuitively understand we're cleaning up, we're starting fresh. And so I think that's what these immersive experiences do. But I think there's no one-size-fits-all. I think you have to pick the path that works for you. And if you don't have the means, the time, the money, the whatever, the access to do something immersive, anything is better than nothing. A daily meditation practice, Artist way, morning pages, writing every morning for a couple of minutes, breath work, doing an hour of breath work a day. I mean, anything's better than nothing. But I am a huge fan, huge fan of immersive experiences, yeah.
2: that's really interesting to hear. I love the whole inpatient outpatient analogy. I think it's so good. I think anyone can make any amount of excuses to not do an inpatient experience, right? Like I'm a mom. I run three businesses. I have this. I have that. I have these responsibilities. I can't just run away from my life for a week. I can't just like go find me for a week. You know, I have three <laughs> children who are very young who need taken care of. You know, I, I think you can come up with any amount of excuses. So, I, I really like that analogy because. People do recover in outpatient too, but also you know the experience is different. It's a very different experience, and I also just sort of wanted to circle back to you saying, "I feel great, I feel good, like all that stuff," and I was just kind of like, "Is she for real?" Because you know, in the book, you mentioned that like everybody looking at you would think you were great, and all of that. So yes. I'm like, "What's different now?" And I, yeah, and I I kind of felt the same as I felt in a, just a tiny bit, not quite the same, but like, you know, you had this whole thing with your father without ruining the book for anyone. Like there was a repeating theme that just followed through the entire book about your relationship with your father. And I, I have to say that I get really Triggered, I think, or just angry—I think is a better word. When I read books like, for example, Wayne Dwyer's book on forgiveness, of you know, like so. Anytime somebody talks about like abusive parents and the author forgave them, every time somebody writes about it, that parent is dead, and I'm like, yeah, it must be really easy to forgive somebody who's dead and who can't come back and hurt you again. pisses me off so much I'm like oh look at you holier than thou like up on your pedestal because that person can't hurt you and that's why you could forgive them and I at the same time yes I totally get the forgiveness is for the forgiver (laughs) not for the person they're forgiving but like I don't know people are dangerous and so Heidi I'm with you I'm on your team. (laughs) I'm on your team. I love that. I'm on your team. I thought you might be based on the book, but I wasn't (laughs) sure. And so I I kind of just wanted to talk (laughs) about that because you struggled for decades with yeah. that and somebody i believe unless i'm mistaken from when i read the book i thought somebody your brother said you had to forgive your dad right and i remember inside everybody you, did
0: yeah Therapists, my dad my teachers everybody told me everybody
2: told. yeah me. so how does one again i don't want to ruin anything in the book because it's such a treasure and i want everyone to read it but how does one sort of move past a relationship where that person does not deserve forgiveness they do at some point have the power to hurt you is it do you have to forgive them, or do you have to hold them accountable? What is it that can help you move past something like that?
0: I mean, given the level of toxicity of my dad and violence and everything, there was no way it was possible for me to really go in and heal all the things until he passed. It just wasn't because I was still on alert. I was thank still, you for admitting like, that. armored. <laughs> I was still armored and you know in the last chapter in the book when I do the confrontation it's like the only reason I could drop the armor was because I knew that he wasn't alive in real life it was like the that was the only way I could do it I don't know what other people could do I just read read Viola Davis's memoir which is amazing by the way I highly recommend it and she talks about how she forgave her dad before he passed and her dad was similar to my dad. And I had the same reaction when she was saying it. I was like, nope. I was like, you're a bigger person than me. You're a better person than me. Nope, not a chance. And I'm okay with that response myself because I do believe certain self-protection mechanisms are really valuable and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with not forgiving until the person passes. I'm okay with that. Like that was my journey. So let me ask
2: you, would you have been able to do the work you just said like I could do it because he was passed so like do you have to wait your whole life for the person to die before you can be great like you are
0: no I don't think so I was getting a little bit more great over time you know that's why I said earlier like I don't think that this is like one immersive experience or you know one therapy session I think I was building up for the biggest battle of my life at the end of the book. I was building up for it, right? It took all the tools, all the internal resources, everything I had within me to kind of fight that battle. And so I was working my way up to it. But you know, over the course of the 20 years of doing all the practices, I was finding forgiveness for a lot of other stuff, you know what I mean, like all the other relationships and figuring out who I was and calling back in the kind of lost and forgotten pieces of myself. And there was like so much more work that it was like, kind of like maybe renovating a house. And you're like, okay, I know at some point, like, we got to replace the roof, like, I know that's coming. But in the meantime, like, let's renovate the bathroom and like let's replace the floors and like you know you maybe you know that it's coming i have a lot of people tell me like a lot of people tell me because now that i work in psychedelics medicine that they've started to do psychedelics with their parents (laughs) which i was i'm like what But it's like a phenomenon now, like a thing where people are wanting to heal that relationship before the parent passes. And psychedelics can often be a facilitator of that because it's a heart opener, especially if you're doing like MDMA type therapy. And a lot of people are finding, and that was the thing in Viola Davis's book, her dad had a transformation and he changed as a person before he died. And so she felt like the version of him that she was in conflict with was no longer there because he had had a transformation. So I hear that from people too. If the parent transforms in their lifetime, then, you know, because you have a new relationship with, you know, a new version of them, a lot of the healing can happen before the person passes. It's hard. That's why all this healing is killing
1: me because
0: the whole thing is so
1: hard. Yeah. I love that meme that you brought up about the virtual roller coaster. Like, it's just so apropos, and I, I feel that strong to my core. So, can I, I'm going to jump forward to this. I, I got to ask a, a couple of questions about psychedelics. Here's the thing. So as somebody who has like a long history as a drug addict and drug abuser, right, when drugs were given to me to help me with certain things, I would abuse them because that's my proclivity. When I first heard about psychedelic therapies, I was nervous for the general population, understanding my proclivity to misuse drugs. I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of opportunity for bad things to happen. And that was my immediate response was like, whoa, I'm not for it. Then... Over time, I've done so much more research. My mind has been so much more open. And I was at, I was just telling Heidi about this. I was at the Omega Institute last summer with my husband for another workshop. And I happened to be there at the same time as this psychedelics workshop. So I was with all of these doctors and researchers and practitioners and students and people from all over the world. And I mean, these were not young hippie kids. These were seekers of all types. And I was fascinated by their experience in my time since then i've watched every documentary and really just spend a lot of my free time watching things all over the internet because i'm so fascinated by the incredibly positive beneficial use cases of psychedelics and the breakthroughs in treatment that have happened so i was fascinated here, the work that you're doing. Can you tell us, and perhaps some of our audience is just really in the dark about what we're even talking about, because I feel like it's so widely spoken about in wellness circles at this point because it's very trend forward. But if we were talking to, for instance, my mom, my mom does not probably have any idea that even this groundbreaking research is taking place. So I have to imagine that our audience runs a spectrum. Can you first bring us up to speed on a little bit of just what's going on out there on the landscape, and then maybe explain to us a little bit about your positive experiences and how they've helped you so much.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your experience and your journey with psychedelics. It completely, totally resonates with me. There's a lot of addiction and mental illness in my family. And I grew up in the post Nixon war on drugs. And I was like, drugs are bad. Meanwhile, like we had a whole kitchen cabinet full of pharmaceuticals that were not bad somehow. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure these drugs are bad. These drugs are not bad. I don't know. And I was also terrified, not because of worried about becoming addicted, but worrying that I was going to end up like one of those ladies on the gurneys who like had a psychic break and would be, you know, mentally incapacitated for the rest of my life. So I really, I I feel you. I think that you would be surprised with regards to the older generation. The older generation are actually the ones that are spearheading this whole thing. Like Michael Pollan and Paul Samets and all these dudes, these dudes are like in their 70s. And they are like, give us back our drugs. Yeah. No, I saw a lot of that at this retreat.
1: A lot of the people were older and I was so intrigued by that.
0: Because they remember there was a massive amount of psychiatric and psychological literature and studies and all kinds of stuff happening in the fifties and sixties with really promising results, incredible results. And they remember that they remember, and they remember using it with friends and just having loving bonding experiences. And then all of that being taken away, you know, things got a little bit out of hand as things do, because we're humans and we can't manage and things got out of hand. And then, you know, we got all the criminalization and everything like that. But, It's the older generation that's like, no, these things are good. These things are safe. They're better than alcohol. They're better than cigarettes. They're better than opioids. They're better than like all the stuff that people are using, like bring them back. So they're the ones that are actually, you know, the pioneers of this field. Psychedelic medicine is the reemergence of medicine that creates an altered state of consciousness. It's medicine like psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, ayahuasca, peyote, you know, it's these medicines that shift your consciousness. And and what they realize, which we've known for 50 years, but we've pretended like, no, it's bad. But that so that like
2: what does shift your consciousness even mean? It means like, that Why is that good?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it means that you can have a very fixed perception of something and you can have a very strong belief that it is the way that it is. Like I've been injured and I'm always gonna feel broken and I um, am never gonna feel better and I'm terrified. I'm terrified of you know leaving my house because I'm afraid it might happen again, right? You, you can be fixed in that and there's a rigidity in that and that could be stuck in your body and something that gives you a little bit more spaciousness around that something that softens your mind and your heart enough to kind of like just move a little bit and to maybe shift your perspective a little bit which is why this next iteration of psychedelic medicine is supposed to be done in therapeutic support settings because while you kind of soften a little bit you're a little bit more at ease you have someone working with you therapeutically to go okay like let's unpack this a little bit like let's like you know who do we need to forgive and maybe there's an emotional release maybe there's some tears that happen or maybe there's some yelling that happens and your body digests the experiences that have been stuck and that need to move through you so it's like a laxative basically it's like helps you poop out things that are like are stuck that your poop is just so tight and you're just like not getting it out and it's like softening your bowels so this can move through you it's like probably the best analogy, which I've never given before. So sorry. (laughs) Sorry for the the poop analogy. But that's what it's like. It's like it helps you poop it out. It helps you also connect to nature because all of these things we know give you a sense of more connectedness to others, more connectedness to nature, more connectedness to your higher power. And once you feel that kind of support and that kind of belonging and that kind of safety, you can also go, oh, it's like not as bad as I thought it was. Like I'm part of all of this. And it's used for people with terminal illness who are going to be transitioning, you know, out of their body. It helps them feel like, oh, it's okay. I can let go of this body. I'm connected to something bigger than this body. And So it just has all of these incredible effects and outcomes for people with depression with anxiety with addiction and again i'm not saying it's a magic pill and there's contraindications if you have bipolar do not do psychedelics you know there's contraindications it's not for everybody like if you have thyroid problems don't do ketamine there's safe ways and unsafe ways to use these but more often than not they have really positive outcomes if done therapeutically like don't just go get mushrooms from your local mushroom guy and just take them by yourself that's a really terrible idea so and let me say one more thing so the company that i work at is a psychedelic education company third wave is it's an education company so i'm building the directory of all the people that can help you and then we have the courses like to teach you and so you mentioned being at omega and meeting all those people like that's part of what they're building they're part of building a network and a platform and resources to help you make good decisions okay i'll stop <laughs> no
2: that's great no no i love that i just wanted to ask a clarifying question about the psychedelics like when you say that it helps with depression anxiety it helps people feel like they're part of something bigger is it only while they're actively using the psychedelics or does that affect stay <laughs> It's a say. It's a say. It's a say. Okay. Dr. Gabby just um, repeated a hand motion. Yeah. i not watching us, but and I, I did. Look, and I, I think it's stay. one of those really fascinating <laughs>
1: fascinating things that it's like, and because here's what I found with with recovery from drugs and alcohol. When you're in enough pain, you will take big actions. So maybe you're thinking, well, I would never do that. That's not for me. And like, maybe it's not for you yet. But I do think that when we're in enough pain, we will look at alternative options. And so for people, and some of the documentaries, I was watching a documentary the other day about a girl that was addicted to heroin and she was working with Gabor Gabor Matei and a bunch of people to do, what is that, uh, Ibogaine? Is that what it's called? Uh, Yeah, yeah. She was doing that to try to get off of opiates. There's all these different use cases. It's like sometimes when you're out of options, you will take a big step. And I think that's a really interesting, you know idea it might not be for everyone everyone might not be you know inclined to run down to their like as you're suggesting they don't to their corner drug dealer and buying mushrooms like as if they're in high school and like you know although i but know plenty you, of people who do that i yes. i do too <laughs> yeah. Using done therapeutically, and I think that's really, because this is so new, Dr. Gabby, maybe that's also part of, that was part of my concern in the beginning. I'm like, yeah, but are people going to use it therapeutically? So I think at the end of the day, if you look to somebody like Dr. Gabby and this company that she's curating, that's going to give you the right resources to do it in the right way where it's done safely, that would be your best approach to exploring something like this to help with those types of things, right?
0: Amen. Okay. That was perfectly said. All right. Well,
1: I think it's all very fascinating and I think more will be revealed. I mean, this is to me, I think this is such a new burgeoning field and I think it's really fascinating. And I always love meeting people like you because like, you know, you think about it as something that's kind of out there and then you just meet a really cool, normal person that like you're somebody that I would be friends with. We are now friends. You're just you're there totally doing doing the real work (laughs) and you're out there exploring with all of this, you know, these new types of healing modalities. And I think it's just really interesting. And I think as we hear more about it from people like you, our minds will open a little bit more. Heidi, what do you think? I want to hear your opinion on that, Heidi. What do you think about it all?
0: I love Uh, how Heidi has so much fire in her. It's so fun. You're so fun. I I am a Leo.
1: (laughs) Thank
2: you. (laughs) Um, I don't like feeling out of control. So it was even, like, as a teenager, when people were experimenting with drugs, I'd be like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I don't want to feel not like me. Like, I'm not okay with that feeling. So the idea, and as I mentioned, I know plenty of people that take them. Unfortunately, Jamie, to your side of things, like, I wound up getting a call from someone in the hospital who needed, like, kids were at home by themselves. And it was a, it was a bad situation because it was like a mix and a match and a not done by, you know, not done in a thoughtful way. And... I've experienced, you know, like a few of those situations and I'm just, but on the flip side, I am, you know, as Jamie mentioned before, I am ever in search of healing and I have, you know, wounds from a lifetime of wounds to heal. And I definitely have the complex, you know, and I have all that stuff to deal with. So, and you know, James, as you said, like, you know, when you're in a dark enough place, you'll try, but I don't, I don't always want to get to the darkest place to have to try. Like I do like to try things before, you know, things hit a rock bottom. I don't, I'm not a person that needs to hit rock bottom to change. I don't think. Yeah.
0: I want to echo like your, your sentiment around control. I'm a control freak. I was born a control freak, hundred percent. And I didn't go into heroic doses. I did microdosing for 18 months before I tried anything, even a little bit more than a microdose. And a microdose is a non-intoxicating dosage. So it would be the the equivalent of taking like a sip of wine instead of drinking a glass of wine. It's like a sip of a psychedelic and you can't really feel any changes if you're super sensitive. You might feel like subtle changes, but it's mostly just like kind of a boost in mood. like. Similarly to like, if you had a shot of wheatgrass or something, right? So it took me almost two years before I could take like a little bit more and feel a little bit of that sensation of not being totally in control. So I just want to echo that. And I want to say there are other kind of ways of integrating it that is not you know, so So what, what kept you on
2: that path though for that 18 months or nearly two years? Like what kept you going? Okay, so I'm writing another book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, that was going to be like a follow-up question. I'm like, so now that you're, you know, you have this whole company, third wave, blah, 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 like where's the, because sci- the book doesn't talk about psychedelics know, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So at the end of
0: that book, I, I like kind of drop you a little hint, like something's going to mm. happen. And so the something yeah. that mm. happened is like. I lived with medicine women in Guatemala and New Mexico and I was initiated into like these other kinds of medicine very unexpectedly wasn't part of my life plan but I think that's what the universe does right it puts you in the right place at the right time when you're ready for the teacher the teacher appears and that's where it dropped me yeah that's where it dropped me it was like oh here's a medicine woman you're gonna live with a medicine woman and I was like what wow like, what's happening <laughs> yeah so that's what the book is about is living with the medicine people and learning the medicine and yeah shifting my beliefs I was exactly where you guys were three years ago I was like what's going on I was like anything they can do with drugs I can do with yoga what's happening like I was just like no no fascinating
1: am I here three years yeah. ago yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. I'm glad we have people like you to kind of be our Eskimo through this entire like space. It's a scary space for a lot of people, but it's a really, really interesting, compelling space. So more will be revealed. We will stay tuned for the next book. Before we end this interview, we always have a last segment, which is called
2: Call. Heidi, take it away. <laughs> Thanks for singing it, Jame. Um, as As our show's yoga expert, I always explain to our audience and any guests who don't know, but you obviously do, that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing inspirational guests, that is you, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could try for a short period of time that would yield a large result? So small action, big result.
1: Please,
0: please, please write your own story. Write your own story. Get a notebook it by the side of the bed if you do it a page a day please write your own story it writing is the most powerful medicine we've talked about a lot of medicine it's been my most powerful medicine even if you never share it with anyone telling yourself your own story is so life-changing and if nothing else comes out of the book and the interviews and all this stuff that's really what i would like the takeaway to be
1: Beautiful, Uh, what a great piece of advice. I absolutely love that. Well, before we let you go, we want everyone to be able to find the book and to find you. So can you share with our listeners where they can find (laughs) you all over the interwebs and social media?
0: Interwebs, please connect, like, share, engage, participate, Dr. Gabby Pellici on all channels. Gabby, two B's and a Y, Pellici's P-E-L-I-C-C-I. I'm everywhere, talking about everything. And I love to be connected to readers and hear about your experience. And
2: can people work with you? Like, can
0: they work with you? Can they go to? I'm, you know, one of the things I'm brewing is some immersive experiences where we do writing and medicine together, right? So we'd have some yoga and some good food and we would do some writing because I really think that that is a you know, an undervalued valued modality. And a lot of women, after they see the book or read the book, they say to me, how did you do it? Like, how, how did you write the story? Because we get a lot of this coaching and training, you guys are have a podcast, I'm sure you've been in branding workshops where they say, tell your story, you know, put it on your website, let people know your why, you know, so we have this version of our business story and our brand and who we are, and you know, why we have the podcast and stuff like that. But it's writing the the shadow stuff that we talked about, the trauma stuff that we talked about that really fills you in holistically as a person, really allows you to integrate all of who you are so that you're like really showing up in your fullness, your full self, your full power. No part of you is discarded or disconnected or disowned. You're really like owning everything. And so, yeah, so anybody that signs up for my mailing list or connects, you'll get some messaging about maybe going on a secret
1: Sounds amazing. I'll stay tuned. And I was going to say, yeah, I I secretly want to sign up. Not so secretly. Well, thank you so much. We love you. We love this interview. You are absolutely fabulous. And thank you everybody at home for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off The Gram Podcast. We'll see you next time.